We all want happy, healthy families, and that quest for good health begins at birth. Sadly, many of our nation's infants have a much more difficult journey reaching their first birthday than other infants. African-American babies, for instance, are as much as two and a half times less likely to reach their first birthday than Caucasian babies. This disturbing disparity has given rise to a national forum, a forum wherein healthcare professionals, birth workers, policymakers, and family planning experts share information and ideas to combat the scourge of black infant mortality and maternal morbidity. Welcome to the GAP podcast series. Hi, I'm Lindell, and welcome to the GAP podcast series. We're going to spend some time over the next few episodes continuing to deal with the issues of justice. Is justice an empty word devoid of depth, or is it an ideal or a concept that we should close ourselves with? Those are the questions that we're going to explore this season, the ideas of justice and what it means as a practical matter of how we live our lives. Now, I've spoken at a lot of film societies and groups and universities on storytelling. And I always talk about the 1915 film, Birth of a Nation, not only because I am just in love with the art and craft of film, but also because I'm in love with the ideas and realities of justice. Birth of a Nation is a piece of art, formalized, codified, and ushered in a generation of radical ideas based on lies that transcended American culture, lies that we're still dealing with the fallout of those lies today. Movies are indeed powerful tools. Cinema is a powerful medium. So today we're going to talk about movies and visual storytelling as mechanisms for social change. Our in-studio guest today is arguably the most talented producer that I've personally ever known and worked with, one of the finest film directors in all the United States, and I'm proud to call him my dear friend and brother. His name is King Hollis. King's resume of film and television and commercial work is prolific and overwhelming. And under full disclosure, I have to say that he and I have produced a lot of television as partners. But the respect that I have for King Hollis and his depth of knowledge of cinema and his willingness to use that knowledge in service of good never ceases to be an inspiration for me. So I welcome the great and powerful King Hollis to the show. King, welcome to the Gap Podcast series. So let me just say point blank. This is my show, and you can't be mean to me today like you're mean to me every other day because I'll just edit it out because I'm producing this show. So, King, welcome to the Gap Podcast Series. Thank you for having me. I know some of the people that work on this show, and I know how to bribe them. I know what they want. There's a possibility that I might get my way, even in the edit room. It could, you know. Although we know how you are in the edit room. We'll just leave that at that. Oh, my God. You know, that's the trouble with having this guy on the podcast is he's going to want to tell all these stories about our years and years of filmmaking adventures and the multiple, shall we say, creative tension that we have had in edit rooms, in boardrooms, in cars, at restaurants, and uh, just fill in the blanks. But we're not going to talk about that today. So as I said in my introduction, I mean, all joking aside, your breadth of knowledge about cinema, the art and craft of cinema really knows no boundaries. And as it relates to matters of justice, King, what I want to just lead off with is I want you, just from your perspective, to talk to our audience about the role of art and film in music, the role that it plays 
in just inside and crafting and moving social movements forward. What have you seen on your journey? Well, I think the arts have always been one of the strongest tools because, you know, we have to remember before we could vote, we could do those things. And that's how we got the messages passed through. And that's also how some of those messages carried over to, you know, the population. Um, you know, you don't have a movement without a voice. And art is your voice oftentimes. And so, you know, you look at some of the work that, you know, you and I have done, take the police brutality issues. I often play KRS albums from 87. And uh, he's talking about the police. Now, this is 1987. The things that he's talking about in the songs are very relevant. People forget what N.W.A. was talking about. You know, people get hung up on the title of F the Police. But if you look at, listen to the lyrics, right, and what they were saying is pretty relevant. You go back to The Last Poets, right? You keep going back and keep going back. In poetry and literature, art and photography, music, when people don't have a legal way to persuade people via voting, via other more governmental means to get rights, that's where art fills in the gap to help open people's hearts and minds and make them think and make them rethink things. And in truth, outside of a, a really burning desire to tell stories. I got into film to help. I wanted to help shape our images and how African-Americans are portrayed, but also not just how we're portrayed, which is vastly important, but our voice. Like, you know, you can make a piece of work in film and because an African-American filmmaker made it, and maybe they're not even talking about things that are so close to the community, but that perspective matters. You know, we've seen a lot of films about our experience that were not told by us, right? And those filmmakers brought their experience and their perspective. And, you know, we need to tell our stories and shape our community and our images. But I think it's important that we lend a lens to how we see the rest of the world, how we see everything else. So you open up a realm of avenues that I want to go down with you. And the first is, in terms of how we're portrayed, I know you've certainly seen, and you and I have discussed, you know, ad infinitum, just, you know, kind of the impact of Birth of a Nation on the psyche of America, partially because cinema was in its infancy in that period. So humans weren't accustomed to having that kind of visual and auditory overwhelming stimulus that the theater experience provided in 1915. So you drill down in Birth of a Nation to the way that Black men are portrayed in that film as shiftless lazy, disrespecting the halls of Congress, feet up on the desk, throwing chicken bones, just no respect at all for one another or for 
any institutions or for themselves. And that movie with those images defined in many ways how Black folks were going to be portrayed in films. And that for me is the source of anger for me because that was just one person's wild meanderings on what he thought Negro males or Black males should be. But those images got to screen. And when those images got to screen, they became for a generation the defining outline of this is how Black folks were portrayed on screen. And, you know, it continued forward, obviously, to a lesser degree, you know, gone with the wind. But the corollary of that, and I wanted you kind of speak to all of this, is that it wasn't just how we were portrayed, King. It was how we were not portrayed. We were not allowed to be heroes in war films. We were not allowed to be persons of courage, persons of virtue. We were always the picture of malaise, of everything that's wrong in society can be personified through that particular Black person. And just kind of speak to how early cinema shaped those ideals going forward. Well, my perspective may be a little different. I think that the consciousness of the country shaped early cinema. And then cinema grew up and got stronger. Cinema and television started to shape the consciousness of the country. So I would say to you that when Birth of a Nation came out, you had plenty of newspapers depicting the same things. That people were not shocked. It was just, oh yeah, that's how they are. By the time they saw the film. I don't think it was oh, this is what we think black people are now. I think he was tapping into some, a belief system that was already immensely prevalent during the era. I think the most revolutionary thing about that film was some of the techniques he used that now historians think he may have borrowed from African-American filmmakers. But, and I can't substantiate that, but I saw a piece where they were talking about early African-American filmmakers and they think that um, some of the techniques that were done were borrowed from other filmmakers, and he would be one of them. But my point is that I think that that film was a reflection of what a big swath of the country felt about black people as a whole. I don't think that white folks went into seeing Breath of a Nation and came out going, man, I didn't realize they were. No, that's what they already believed. Because it had been depicted in comics and posters and newspapers F an item for a long time. He was just echoing a sentiment that was already there. What happened was, as time goes forward, films started getting more, there's more access, there's more theaters, right? The boom of theaters, there's more, and there's television comes, and there's more television. And then, at first, the communities, you know, these thought leaders, were really echoing the consensus. But then as movies got more powerful, that switched. And people were getting these sentiments. And, you know, their minds were being shifted by cinema and television. And I think that one of the things that happens is that when you fear something and you think it's a threat, you try to dismantle it. 
And that's what was going on in cinema with us. There was a fear of our progress. There was a fear of people who, throughout all the atrocities you can imagine, just won't die, just won't keep going. You know, there's a film that I was watching the other day with uh, one of our partners, Ed Harris, and it was Hamburger Hill. And I'm watching this film and all these young stars, and I'm like, the insanity of going up that hill, the insanity and glory, magnificent film, of going up that hill. The thing that people don't understand is like, we have always been going up that hill. And people use the media, they use film, and they use television to help, at the very least, temper and mitigate us going up that hill. It became a tool. And so when we got in, we started making more films. And, you know, there was the 20s and 30s. There was certain, you know, times when we were, you know, really making our films. But then the, quote, explosion in the late 60s and 70s, black, you know, black exploitation films, whatnot. Well, again, that was controlled. And only certain narratives were going to get out. You know, I grew up in a time where when I saw a lot of black faces in films, the subject matters were mainly comedies and or crime, right? They were either hood films, and it's the archetype. It's the classic archetype. It was the super Negro, it was the super criminal, or the super minstrel, right? The clown. And these were the three prevailing archetypes that kept getting perpetuated over and over. And every time someone tried to introduce a more accurate depiction, a character who is flawed, but human and courageous and full of love and depth and humanity, you know, it was, who's going to want to see that? But what they're really saying is, well, where are these people? I mean, I know a few of them, but where are they? Where are all these, you know? And I think that the super Negro had as much as a problem in the fact as the minstrel and the super criminal. And the super Negro was not real, right? Because he was infallible. He was perfect. He had to be perfect. He had to be perfect at the time when they were doing Look Who's Coming to Dinner to make him passable and validate him and you know, make him digestible for suburban whites, right? Tax-paying voters who don't want to see First of all, the idea that this black man's marrying this beautiful white woman. But if that's going to ever happen in the spectrum, it has to be a super Negro for that to happen. You know, just a, you know, akin to Jesus and everything he does, right? So that if you were just a hardworking blue collar man, you know, who wants to see that? That was the one person. You know, one of the most important TV shows to me was Rock. Rock was a blue-collar dude, got off of work, had a beer, and he cursed. He didn't really curse on TV, but I remember he, they would do you know, things where he, he would almost curse. He was like, you, that's what he was. You know, people forget, that was a blue-collar guy that had a huge, strong moral conviction. It was an important character. Frank's Place, Tim Reed, important, great. He was a bartender. He was thoughtful and nuanced, right? And I mentioned the television shows because these films, those things don't get the screen. Because I think the last place that you see change is actually movies. When I was in, growing up in the 80s, you know, you had the minstrels who they would 
start to humanize a little bit Eddie Murphy's characters in the films and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, luckily enough, was a pioneer, some kind of hero. He was an imperfect, flawed, tragic character that made you feel who he was and feel what he was going through. He was ahead of his time. So there was moments, there was breakthroughs that were starting to happen. And I think part of that was a guy like Richard Pryor could say, I'm not doing that. He had the power to do it. I'm doing this. So, you know, as it progressed, and, you know, I remember when you get, you know, to sleep with anger, when you start getting films like that, that start to come about, you know, Daughters of the Dusk, and you start getting, you know, you know, Charles, you, know you start getting films that are more thoughtful. Not to say that the fact that there were crime films that didn't have these great elements and powerful elements, like we talked about earlier, you know, uh, Deep Cover. It's an incredible performance by Lawrence Fieldsburg. It was very nuanced, you know, what his character was. But it was in the world of crime, which is okay. It's okay to go there. When you look at films like that, even Men's Society, which was really a hard, hard look at the lives of what's going on, right? There's nothing wrong with telling those stories. The problem becomes when you still fall into these three archetypes. And that's it. There's no new ones. That's where it gets problematic. Because the super Negro doesn't exist. And we're not all criminals. And we're not all minstrels. We're not all clowns. That's really insightful. We're about to go to break. We're in studio with legendary and prolific film producer-director King Hollis. And you're listening to The Gap Podcast Series. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to the Gap Podcast series, and today it's been a real treat. We're in studio today with the extraordinary and prolific film producer, Mr. King Hollis, and we've just been on a wide-ranging journey of discussions about the importance of cinema and its impact on society and what it's meant to the way that some groups are portrayed and not portrayed, and King has been just remarkable. And we're about to continue our discussion now about an important project that he's been working on for several years that is certainly quite near and dear to his heart. And I want to give you, King, an opportunity to introduce that series, your vision for it, and how you came to want to create the incredible series that you have named Blood and the Badge. Talk to us about that. Blood and the Badge. So um, 2014, um, there were some um, police killings where some unarmed black men had been killed. And I started, you know, lamenting about this. And full disclosure, Lindell is my creative partner on this series. And proud to be. And so I went to Lindell. I said, you know, listen, I'm tired of being a couch warrior, Facebook warrior, we got to do something. So our company at the time, we funded the development of this piece and we started shooting, interviewing people. We interviewed former officers. We interviewed active officers. We interviewed activists. So you understand, you know, for those who are listening, you typically, when you have something like this, you have a, a period called development where you develop the story and then you try to package it and you 
create like a sizzle and you create a deck, which is a kind of a, think of it as a huge brief, creative brief on what you're trying to do. Um, we came up with a, initially a six part series. And what we wanted to do, I wanted to have a complete thorough dive into the issue. I wanted to be unflinching. I wanted to be in your face. I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to make people uncomfortable, not for shock value, because the truth in America is always uncomfortable. So, you know, we embarked on this and my vision was, let's have a thorough conversation that is solution-based. I didn't want to have a six-part bitch fest. I wanted to go and uncover things, examine things, and then here's how we can help change this. Here's how we can help fix this. What are the ideas? And the ideas are there. In fact, not only are the ideas there, some of these things are in practice. So that was the thesis. You know, I remember being in a pitch meeting and, you know, like when you talk about gun violence, what is the bowling for Columbine of police films, right? What is the why we fight for police films? When, you know, that, I wanted something that in-depth and I wanted to talk about issues that are not talked about. I didn't see some of these issues in the media. I didn't see anyone really going there in certain areas. And, you know, we wanted to have a fair examination. We looked at the issues. We wanted to look at the history of policing. We wanted to look at, have an episode where the police spoke for themselves and their perspective. We wanted to have an episode where families who were victimized by bad policing spoke. And we wanted to dive into the structural issues that make up this problematic issue. Look at the prison pipeline system. Look at the culture of policing, the blue wall, as they put it. And then you know, really dive into solutions. And the whole goal, aim, is that, in truth, our team wants citizens to get the due process in the courtroom and not a morgue. We don't want unarmed citizens to be murdered. And we want solutions for all these underlying issues that cause, you know, an environment where police behave this way or feel like they need to. And we want to have these conversations and have some real solutions. I have plenty of police stories personally. Part of the thing was that I have personal stories that happened to me and my family members. One of the cases that I was looking to examine, I had no idea that one of the people was my cousin. I didn't know. And uh, that happened while we were putting this together. And I have two sons. You know, Lindell and I would always say, we'd like the, the officer and the citizen to go home. And let's examine why sometimes they're not. And have a real honest conversation. And that's the, the key, is honesty. So that was kind of the motivation behind it. And I'll admit, you know, when I started, I was angry. I still get angry over these cases. I was literally saving cases this morning before I came here. And it was, it's been a difficult road. It's been um, going on eight years. We might have a partial funding for the series coming up. We're waiting on that. But it's something that, you know, most civilizations, if you study the fall of empires, one of the markers is the people start fighting with the military presence, the citizens fight. In Rome, they started fighting soldiers, Roman soldiers. There was issues. The redcoats started shooting. I mean, the American Revolution, the shot heard around the world was the killing of an unarmed black man. 
that's how the country started. And so the Redcoats were beating up people. And there were allegations of rape. And there was all kinds of things with the Redcoats. And one of the tipping points in the American Revolution was the citizens were pretty tired of the Redcoats. In the Boston Tea Party, the Redcoats stood down because there was too many citizens. What people don't know about that is that the Redcoats kind of allowed it to happen because they were outnumbered. They got out of the way and allowed the riots to happen because of the animosity that they faced. They didn't have no part of that. And as it relates to African-American people, you know, from the slave catchers to present, the things that have been going on with policing, especially, and, and I always say to people, if you want to understand America, the soul of America, examine the relationship between America and black people, America and Native Americans. That is the core of really the relationship of the power struggle. And I think what's missing in the conversation, people say, well, they don't kill just unarmed black people, right? I go, no, they kill unarmed white people. But you got to ask yourself, why is that not on Fox News? Why is, in fact, that not on corporate news a lot? It's there sometimes. And I will say, black and Latino unarmed people are killed. And I want to make sure I make this very clear. All of us get focused on shootings, and we should. But we're talking about beatings, tasings, death while incarcerated. This issue goes beyond these shootings that are publicized. A lot of poor whites are beaten and shot and killed. I have two cases this morning, two white guys, two white men, and one was brutally assaulted, and the other one was put into a freezer and frozen to death. He had mental health issues. Police in America, there's a problem. There's a systemic problem with American policing. And it's not rocket science if you don't hold People who hold power accountable, they will do what they want, whether it be in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, White House, corporate America, private sector billionaires, abusive father in his home. If you don't hold those who have power over others accountable, they will do what they want. And that is at the core of what's wrong with police in America. We can go very nuanced, all right, about culture, police culture, historical bias and racism, poor training, bad psych reports and still hiring cops. Bad cops get rehired over and over. We can go a lot of places, but if you want to really crystallize what this is truly about, it's about one, not holding people accountable in power. Two, a police force, a law enforcement that has been trained and funded to truly protect the private sector and not the citizens. And you have a social construct where people with agendas, biases, and prejudice use the police against others that they don't feel are redeemable. And this makes for a deadly cocktail. 
Because I'll say again, the shootings are abhorrent, but people are tased to death in this country. People are beaten to death in this country. People are locked up for crimes and they never see a courtroom. And these are systemic issues. And the criminality that is active, that's outside of those things that we say police abuse of power, police brutality, there's a criminal element in law enforcement that's not readily discussed. Taking money, forcing women to have sex, child pornography cases, helping traffic narcotics. There's a criminality that goes on to police departments all over the country. There was, uh, in Louisville, the Brown and Taylor case. So two of the cops were involved in separate police rings. One was a ring that was a money ring where they were clipping money. This is Vice News reported this. One of the cops in that case was in a money ring where these gang of cops were clipping money when they were doing narcotic bust and other bust. One of the other cops was involved in a sex ring where they had these warrants on these women and instead of taking them in, when they'd find them, they'd force them to have sex and keep them free as long as they kept them having sex. Both of those cops were on that case and exposed in these other rinks. There's police gangs, there's historical LA gangs, police gangs notorious from the deputies to the cops. So there's an element there. And you know, the thing that you want is you want the police to get ahead of this. Because the thing that always struck me about you know, dealing with this issue is that I've always had this almost cynical, you know, side of me that I'm like, you know, you guys don't care about crime. You care about which crime you deem criminal. Because if it was about crime, you would police your own. You'd shut them down because you know they're clipping money. You know they're beating people unwarrantedly. You know, but you're like, hey, you know, people don't get it. When you're in a dangerous situation, the cops, the officer, it's a dangerous job. They have a code and they rely on each other because they're taught, hey, your other blue brothers and sisters can save your life. You got to back them 100%. I always argue that it's akin to a morte, right? It's like they take an oath, right? And that oath is like, listen, we're going to back each other no matter what. I'm going to shoot Walters in the back as he's running away. And I'm going to take my taser. And I'm going to put it right by his body. And the other cop is going to come by, see you do it, give a wink and a nod, and it's cool. And that's criminal behavior. That is very true. And, you know, that is an uncomfortable thing for Americans. We are coming up on the end of our show and I'm going to have to have you back because, you know, it's because I work with you so many days, I actually forget how smart you are. And then you come on the show and you're like, oh my God, you're like one of the most eloquent, erudite guests I've ever had on the show. And I forget that because I, you know, I see you so often. Does this mean I can't say bad things about you? I thought you said we're done. I mean, according to my, my phone, we have nine minutes. I thought we were wrapping at one. So, I mean, in nine minutes, I can give you the whole oral history of all the things that you want to know about Lindell Singleton. Well, that will make fodder for our next show because we've already said that we want to have you back. But I do want to give you 
before we close, there's one question I want you to just offer an answer to, which is really important. And that is, what is your advice to young filmmakers, young artists who want to use their art as a mechanism for social change? What would be your advice to young artists? My advice to young artists is my advice I gave to myself a long time ago. You know, I can use my talent to sell shoes or I can use my talent to help people. You can sell things, you can make art, and you can help people. You know, you can inform, right? And if you have a platform in your talent, why not take a portion of your time and help people? Because we live in 100% at this point visual medium of our existence, okay? That's kind of where we're at. And um, you can make an impact, your voice, for anything that you deem important to you. You can go out and you can make an impact with your voice, with your medium, with your artistic ability. And I would say that the great thing is that it will outlive you. It will impact people for a long time. We talked about the film earlier. It was called The Fire This Time. I watched that in the mid-90s, and it changed my life. And it helped set me on a course. So, you know, Randy Holland directed that film. He lent his voice to uh, a problem, and it helped a young filmmaker. I was 24 when I saw the film, and I saw it, and I was like, this type of material, this lane, is something I need to be a part of. And when I had the opportunity to do it, I did it. And that man who I've never met, he, you know, he helped me. He was one of the films that helped me go along that course. And I say to young people, make art, and if you can, make change. Make art, and if you can't make art, make change. Well, it's been an extraordinary journey today in studio with the prolific, the extraordinary, the great producer and director. Mr. King Hollis, Mr. Hollis, thank you for being on the Gap Podcast series. It's been an honor to have you in studio today. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, Lindell. And as always, in life, you're always right. In film, I'm always right. Okay. On that note, uh, we're going to say goodbye. You've been listening to the Gap Podcast series. Thank you for listening. The Gap Podcast series is produced by Limeville Entertainment in association with Sagasse Media Group. Also. Be sure to visit us online at 365plusone.org. That's 365plusone.org.